This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, Hakuin's Prescription, was given at Springs Mountain Sangha in Colorado Springs, Colorado on April 9, 2005. These are very crunchy. Okay. <laughs> it's come to that. Has it? <laughs> Competing with Oreos. <laughs> well, tonight's lesson comes from Hakuin. Hakuin was a Japanese Zen master of a couple of hundred years ago. And uh, at that time in Japan, Rinzai Zen had become extremely successful, uh, identified with all of the ruling institutions of the country, and uh, rich and powerful and um, virtually moribund. And Hakuin um, moved out to the country, found himself as a dilapidated little temple in the country. It's hard to say fast. started working with farmers and housewives and tea shop ladies and innkeepers and um, single-handedly completely revitalized and remade Koan Zen. Um, such was the force of his genius and the, the power of what he did that every um, contemporary Rinzai Koan master is a direct descendant of Hakuin's in the world. So um, Hakuin gives us a history lesson about how it is we come to be sitting in this room together. And it's called His Prescription for the Penetrating One's Nature and Becoming a Buddha Pill. (laughs) Um, This has been slightly adapted and edited for a modern American audience. (laughs) My name is Yusuke Odawara. I've been a pharmacist since before my parents were born. Listen to me for a second about the effects of a certain medicine. The pill I'm talking about is called penetrating one's nature and becoming a Buddha. Its active ingredient is direct pointing at the human mind. If you take this pill, you'll cure all your suffering and the causes of your suffering. You can rest easy, far from the diseases of the three worlds of greed, hatred, and ignorance and get relief from the aches and pains of going round and round and round and round and round in the six realms. The medicine is Prince Siddhartha's. As you all know, one day he suddenly left home and went on a pilgrimage seeking special herbs. Out of this came four kinds of pharmacological texts with more than 5,040 volumes. His apprentices transmitted the becoming a Buddha pill, which is the essential cure for the suffering of sentient beings. In China, the school split into five houses while this and that were going on. For instance, Weka's arm ache was cured. Weka was um, Bodhidharma's disciple who cut off his arm in the snow to prove his sincerity. Weka's arm ache was cured. So was, so was Yunmen's limp. Yin Men's teacher kindly smashed his leg in a, in a gate, bringing him to enlightenment. So, so was Yin Men's limp, limp and Bai Zhang's nosebleed. 
Bhaijong went on a walk with Great Master Ma, always a dangerous thing to do. And Great Master Ma asked him, what's that? And Bhaijong said, wild geese. <laughs> and Master Ma said, are they still here? And Bhaijong said, they've flown away. And Master Ma grabbed him by the nose and turned it and said, flown away? Still gone? So, this pill um, cured Weka's arm ache, Yin Men's limp, and Bai Zheng's nosebleed. Lots of other things happened, too many to talk about. It was franchised to Japan where 24 pharmacy branches were opened. Now I run that company, the original family store. I'll tell you the recipe for the pill. First, cut a piece of Jiaozhou cypress tree from the garden <laughs> and pound it in the sixth ancestor's mortar. Then add Great Master Ma's West River water, knead it with Hakuin's one hand, shape it into a ball with Juju's finger, wrap it with Xuanxia's white paper and write on it, penetrating one's nature and becoming a Buddha pill, manufactured by Rinzai Company, Zen County. When you swallow this pill, you'll throw up swollen knowledge and the cathartic effect won't fade. <laughs> chew it well, chew it well. It will stay with you, coming and going, standing or sitting. Gulp it down. Let it rest below your navel. It doesn't cost a cent. Well, that's my little pitch. I can't keep myself from saying, won't you take my pill? So this week, we're taking the pill. We're passing the pill amongst us, swallowing it down. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what that means, uh, one, one aspect of what that means. In the old Chinese texts, the words that are used to mean enlightenment are things like awakening, and that's something we're all doing this week, right? And also being intimate, becoming intimate. And that's something that's been happening a lot these days. There's been a lot of becoming intimate. And another word that was used quite often was realization. And that's the word I want to talk about tonight. Realization means to make real. <laughs> It means to make actual so that it has an effect in the world. It has a, a, a lovely double meaning of understanding. I, you know, I realize, I understand, and also I make real. I make something happen in the world. One of the things we really need in this tradition, um, which has a very fragile foothold on this continent, is um, people who can translate not just the languages that this tradition comes from, but the mind, the, mi the minds from China, the minds from Japan, um, what they were really trying to say. We need people with um, a great combination of both scholarship and imagination in order to make this, this transition happen. Um, I'll just give you a, you know, a, a simple example that, that springs immediately to mind. Often you'll hear uh, injunctions 
in Zen centers um, and in Zen talks not to read. And that's based on this old um, Chinese idea that uh, Zen is a special transmission outside the scriptures, not based on words or phrases. So it gets turned into this, this little thing, don't read. But when you go back and you read um, those actual Chinese words and you try to translate what they were saying into, into our own times, you find out that, that actually um, they had a tremendously sophisticated understanding of, of what reading was. And that that injunction was something quite different than we've made it today. Uh, Chan came from India to China first as a great body of texts that needed to be translated and digested. So the first part of what those old teachers meant when they said that there was something beyond the words and the texts was, you know, you can't read those books and think you get it any more than we could read an owner's manual for a car and think we understood how to drive. Yeah, it's a different thing. Okay, so that's a good point, right? We know that. We know that this is a practice. We know this is something you do. At the same time, um, these were people who called reality the great text. And they had a very postmodern understanding about texts and reading. Everything was a text. Facial expressions, gestures, what people said, what people did, political situations, cultural movements, all of it. They read it as a text, much as is done you know, today in, um, in, in the academic world. If you remember the story I told you the other night, when, when uh, Fa Yan realizes something and goes to, t- to speak with his teacher, before he even says a word, his teacher starts dancing. He's read the text of Fa Yan's awakening, and he's responding to it. So um, it's really, really important that we have, again, the scholarship and the imagination to understand what these things really were and what they really meant so that we don't reduce a grand and glorious invitation like read the great text into a petty little injunction not to read books during a retreat. Do you see what I'm saying? It's really important. So um, some of us have to care about that. Some of us have to do that hard work, and some of us have to support that hard work being done. Um, if you feel like, whoa, you know, I just come for the sitting, <laughs> you know, and maybe it, maybe a talk or two, that's that's fine. That's fine. Um, there are, you know, one or two people in this room who have been bitten by that particular snake and who have already lost their lives. <laughs> <laughs> when I was um, when I was studying koans, we had this text which was like a, this barely legible fourth-generation photocopy of an eighth-generation mimeo copy of some you know antique text originally set on the Gutenberg press, <laughs> and um, it 
had all of these sort of charming um, typographical errors in it. And one of my favorites was in this koan I'm referring to about the, the, the turtle-nosed snake loose in the Dharma hall and who's been bitten by the snake. So it came out as a warning against poisonous snacks. <laughs> in the meditation hall <laughs> which which kind of works too you know <laughs> so um so so, the, so so there are people who have eaten of the poisonous oreo cookies and will do this but whether or not you choose to do that part whether or not that part calls to you there is this question of realization. And no matter how many hours, hundreds and thousands of hours you spend sitting, and no matter how many koans you work with, and how many talks you listen to, and how many of those great texts you read, and all the rest of it, no matter, no matter, if you don't realize your practice, if you don't make it real in the world, it is not ripe, it is not mature, and it is not complete. So, um, let's remember that this practice was forged in very difficult times. It was created at a time in China of great political and cultural turmoil. Um, and it was created in many ways in response to actually a couple of different times of great political and cultural turmoil. This practice didn't grow in a vacuum. It didn't grow in, in um, isolated meditation halls way up in the mountains away from everything that was going on. It grew in warfare and civil war and refugees and persecutions and all of that, invasions. Um, because it was, it was a way that people could deal with those events in their lives and a way that they could participate um, in a way that felt, that felt useful to them. It was um, very lucky after this, after this sort of initial period of disruption then to have about 300 years of peace and prosperity in the Tang Dynasty to really flower, you know. And, and thank heavens it did because enough happened and attained a kind of critical mass that it still exists a thousand years later, which is quite something when you think about it, you know. Um, but at the end of that time, when uh, Buddhism went out of favor with the, the imperial court and it was viciously suppressed in the country, Buddhism virtually died out in China except for Chan. This was the one practice that survived. Um, and one of the reasons certainly was that it didn't require a lot of apparatus, apparatus. It didn't require a lot of special stuff. It didn't require very much at all except your own heart and your own mind and a willingness to keep asking questions, to keep wondering, to keep opening your heart no matter what was going on. And so it survived and it got carried in pockets across China and then across the seas to Japan and so on to here. So we carry the practice around with us. It's infinitely portable. That's one of the beautiful things about it. 
you put it in your pocket and you go and you have everything you need anywhere you are how do we how do we realize it how do we make it happen I was thinking um, because of Sarah's in my talk the other night on sympathetic joy God that was just last night (laughs) that other night weeks and weeks and months ago when we did that talk um, and, and I remembered a, a quote, a, a Taoist quote from Zhuangzi, who was the um, second great uh, Taoist philosopher. And he was, t- he was talking about um, what made a great leader of people. And he said, um, people never even mention her name, for she lets things find their own joy. People never even mention her name, because she lets things find their own joy. And I thought, what a beautiful, you know, motto that would be for um, for an ethics or a, a social action um, of sympathetic joy. You know, we don't have to go out and fix everything. We don't have to go out and and um, and and remake the world in our image. We just have to work each of us in the ways that create the circumstances for people to find their own joy, you know? And what are those circumstances? Decent places to live, clean water, educated children, you know, less warfare, more food, food better distributed. Yeah. And, and what it would be like to trust that if we did that, people would find their own joy. You know, so that's what I want to encourage you to consider as you realize your awakening, as you realize what it is you come to understand um, and to get here in these uh, these times we spend together in the meditation hall. What can you do to help provide the circumstances in which? more human beings can find their own joy. I don't have the illusion that um, by Tuesday morning there will be a significant change in Colorado Springs because, (laughs) you know, we're all back there. But we don't do it because we think we're going to win, you know. We don't do, we won't only do it if there's a good chance that things will turn out well. We do it because we have to do it. What else can we do? Because that is the expression of our awakening. That is our realization. And it is as natural as breathing and sitting and walking and feeding each other and smiling. Sometimes we can um, think about the stories from the past and think, well, you know, that was another time. Those were other people. Those were, those were special people, you know. This is the age of the degenerate dharma. You know? <laughs> That's not us. But the truth is that um, we were them and they are us. So we, we, nobody else, we are tokimune. Um, 
watching for the for Genghis Khan's fleet to come across the seas to Japan and then seeing it and saying the great thing has come that is us we are um, Fayan and Yuanjian, his teacher in their tender parting scene where Yuanjian lets him go so that he can um, he can realize fully his own understanding we're um, we're Ryokan playing with the children in the village you know we're uh, we're Ling Zhao uh, throwing herself down next to her father when he trips saying I saw you fall so I'm helping <laughs> we're um, we're the demon girl who was a a nun at Tokeji in Japan and uh, Tokeji was right across the street from the the, the great temple of Enkakuji and uh, women weren't allowed to just go listen to the lectures there they had to prove their understanding in order to get in so demon girl went steaming over to the gate at Enkakuji demanding admittance and the gatekeeper said you must answer this question what is the place out of which all the ancestors and Buddhas have come and she grabbed his head and she pushed it into her pelvis and she said, this is the place all the ancestors and Buddhas have come. We are demon girl. (laughs) She is us. Um, In our own time, you know, we are Ruth Fuller who... um, who was asked to translate her Japanese teacher's great work on uh, on Koan Zen. And yeah, she translated it and she wrote a few footnotes. And the footnotes that Ruth Fuller wrote to her teacher's treatise on Koan Zen is the single greatest modern work of Rinzai Zen, the footnotes. And we're Senzaki Nyogen, um, Relocated during World War II from Los Angeles to Heart Mountain Camp here in the Rockies, um, whose six by six foot bedroom at Heart Mountain was during World War II the only functioning zendo in America. We are them, they are us. Um, this is our way, this is our medicine, these are our pills. And um, you know, whether you choose to write uh, the next great book of footnotes <laughs> to somebody else's work, you know, or to teach the children or um, to provide better neighborhoods, whatever it is you do, that is not separate. That is not different. That is not the other part of your life. That is the fullness of your realization, of your meditation of your awakening it is partial and incomplete and not yet cooked until you have opened your hands in the world and helped create the circumstances by which all beings might find their own joy thank you These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.